0: This is an MACP podcast in collaboration with the BJSM. My name is Dan Nichols, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Christian Barton discussing knowledge translation. Christian, can we start with you letting listeners know a bit about your background and how you developed your interest in knowledge translation?
1: yeah, sure. So I'm a researcher at La Trobe University. Uh, I've been researcher there for a few years now. I did my PhD there a number of years ago, more than 10 years ago, and did a lot of research around biomechanics and knee pain. My big focus has transitioned towards doing knowledge translation, and that stemmed from a few issues, and one of them being that actually I realized very quickly in my research career that no one read any of my research, and I actually have data, and I have um, research to support that that's the fact. Um, those who want to look it up can. It relates to orthoses and patella femoral pain and I think one of the other frustrations I had is I saw a lot of patients in my clinic I was spending two days a week treating patients and a lot of them being really poorly managed by various different health practitioners and I wanted to try and make a change so I mixed my time between clinical practice and and doing research very much focused on knowledge translation
0: before we come to discuss uh, where digital and social media can reshape knowledge translation can we kick off with what is knowledge translation yeah, so I guess a broad definition for knowledge translation would
1: be it's the dissemination, exchange, and application of knowledge to try and improve health. Um, so in broad context, it's probably giving people the, the knowledge and capacity to, to make the change to better people's health that they're either managing or, or also better people's health in general, so directly translating knowledge to patients. It um, probably fits within a broader context of what we'd call implementation science, and that is that we actually lead to behaviour change. So I see knowledge translation as a really important step to to creating I guess implementation and
0: behaviour change in the longer term. Yeah, absolutely, and it's, it might be something that clinicians aren't really considering because it's not being so vast. It's something that they've just evolved, come on a bit organic. Um, but but something I was particularly interested in was a statistic that I read that um, referring to the, the evidence practice gap of been approximately 17 years uh, for 14% of the research to be implemented, which is kind of a staggering statistic uh, to me. So on on that note, can, can you um, discuss how uh, digital innovation has changed the, the, the traditional journal publishing? process?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think the, the stat of 17 years for 14% to be implemented is based on not necessarily strong science or data, but a couple of people have kind of explored this a little bit, yeah. and they see within medical research that a lot of what gets published in research papers doesn't actually translate into, into the real world and actually make a change in the way patients are cared for. Um, certainly the data I have around exercise prescription knowledge of physios, also looking at knowledge of managing common conditions like patellofemoral pain and knee osteoarthritis tells us some similar things. For example, some of the data we have would suggest that nearly half of physios are not aware of the lack of evidence to support knee arthroscopy and knee ostearthritis, which is something that a lot of funding bodies are cutting funds to, and we're actually starting to see some rates decline now, but Mm. they're not able to actually educate patients about this. So it's certainly something that's widespread. The exact stats are difficult to tell. Um, One of the issues is, that journals have probably been the main disseminator of knowledge over a number of years. And I liken the academic journal to maybe a newspaper. And one of the things that's happened within academic journals is the only digital innovations they've embraced is to streamline the way they disseminate their 350 year old model. And that is to publish a a journal article or a manuscript that contains good science and, and good data. Uh, instead of publishing and printing loads and loads of copies and sending them out, they now publish it online, but in very much the same format. So it's still very much based on written text. not a lot of additional images, not a lot of additional engaging resources. If we compare that to the newspaper industry, this is where it gets really interesting and that is we saw from around 2009, 2010, uh, revenue for advertising, for example, amongst newspapers which had been just rising steadily for a number of years, dropped off the cliff. So it actually just disappeared. And one of the reasons was actually consumers who needed information from newspapers started turning to the internet and started turning not to the internet for a written format of newspapers. But for video and for social media content. So that was very much consumer and user driven, and we haven't seen the same thing happen when it comes to science in terms of data. Somehow journals still have this monopoly on the way it's disseminated, and they have a profit margin of around 35% if we look at some of the bigger journals, uh, which is quite high. And if there's no incentive for them to change because they keep making a lot of money, then they're not going to change. Yeah. Yeah, so
0: so you can see the the change for them has been maybe putting it uh, electronic copies. So um, when I was doing my first degree, I remember having to jot down some potentially good articles, go down to the British Medical uh, Library in London, troll through photocopy loads, read them back at home, realise only one of them was of use, and it's taken me pretty much a whole day. So having access to it online is good, but we could be doing a yeah. whole a whole heap more. So I think the stats are: if we look at musculoskeletal yep. management, uh, I think
1: there's around about 36 papers per day indexed on Medline which would relate to musculoskeletal physiotherapy care. So you're not going to read 36 articles in a day and still treat your patients. Yeah, um, and if you do, you're not going to sleep. <laughs> so it takes around about 15 minutes to read an academic journal article. Uh, you obviously have to critique that article, see whether it's trustworthy, etc. Even if it's being peer reviewed, it's not all Always published in the highest level journal, it doesn't always go through a stringent peer review process. Some of the research we've been doing more recently is okay. We see these consumer changes in the newspaper industry. What are the consumer changes that are demanded from from clinicians who are treating patients and from patients? And if we look at a physiotherapy population, we did a study looking at a massive online open course, uh, which was related to physical activity for physiotherapists. Uh, we uh, sent out a survey to around 2000 physios. We actually had response from around 400 of them from 67 different countries. So we get this big international cohort and what they tell us when we get them to rank their preferences for what they prefer to learn from, and we get them to rank between workshops, podcasts, uh, videos, also thinking about blogs, thinking about infographics, all the different types of medium that we can use. And the original journal article itself. Is there's huge diversity in learning preferences. Yeah. So some people will still rate academic journal like articles number one.
0: Yeah.
1: What's interesting is the most people that, uh, sorry, the the type of resource that gets rated number one the most is actually workshops or so attending a workshop. With people, But it's also the one that gets rated number seven the most or last the most, which is really interesting. The things that we see rated the highest typically across the board tend to be visual things like infographics and videos. But again, you've still got a group of people who are rating them last. So it's going to depend on the learning preferences yeah. of the individual. So when we think about social media, it's not just about putting information on social media, like a link to an article or something like that, it's actually thinking about what type of dissemination method is all these individuals going to want,
0: and we're gonna to have to be really diverse in what we provide. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, on that so what what are the current limitations of the digital and social media landscape? All right.
1: Yeah, so I think if we look at uh, the social media bubble, there's a lot of clinicians who are drawn to using it for, for obtaining knowledge. And one of the reasons is you can get the same amount of information from an infographic or a video, for example, in about three minutes yeah. as you would get from an academic journal article that take you 15 minutes to read. The knowledge retention from that is actually about six times if we look at things like marketing literature, for example, where marketers are very clever. They need to sell a product, so they research this really well. They know if they write a heap of information down in text versus provide some visually engaging resources, that visually engaging resource is gonna make someone remember it, and at least six times as much. So right now, people are drawn to look at these things, it's just an inherent human nature, but the quality of what they have access to is actually quite poor. So one of the issues is that not many journals have embraced this. There's a few now doing, uh, pr- producing podcasts and also starting to produce peer reviewed infographics, something we've introduced at British Journal of Sports Medicine. But most journals haven't got to that level. So we have people disseminating and translating knowledge who are very clever at making resources like infographics and videos. Some of them know the, know the information really well and disseminate the right information. Unfortunately, many others will disseminate fake news because it fits their agenda and they can actually sell something as part of it. So this information that people are uh, consuming. Assuming, is not peer reviewed at all and that's a
0: really big problem and something we need to try and change and improve uh, how do you see change and improvement in that? do you think that's going to be a skill set that the clinicians going to develop naturally as in the same way as critiquing an article they will critique an infographic and and come to their own decisions that actually maybe there's an invested interest in in that and yeah i, think, it.
1: I think there's two levels to that one is being able to critique the source of the information of w- what's gone into that infographic or video, because by definition, those infographics and videos are only going to give you a summary of the information. So if you want to learn more about the methods and what's behind that information, you probably still need to go back to the original source. So mm. that publishing process of having an academic article is still really important, but you need the clinician to look at stuff, not take it as gospel and go back and critique the source and have that ability. Yeah. The other option is actually to try and fit this gap is that perhaps a clinician just needs some trusted resources and trusted groups and bodies that can produce this information where they know that it's actually been peer reviewed. So they've had some really clever people who know the area well. They look at the infographic, they look at the videos, look at these other things, and they say, yep, this gets a ticket of approval. This is correct information and information that we should be disseminating. And if they know that they can trust that source, they can then take that basic information and maybe implement it in their clinical practice and have some understanding. So there's probably two different levels to consider that.
0: Excellent. So so as a form of almost like a kite mark where people can then see this has been a quality resource or our interest.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's the issue at the moment is a lot of stuff that they will read will come from sources where it's not necessarily trusted information and sometimes information gets misconstrued. And I think one of the things we have to embrace is that as an academic or as an institution or even journals for that matter, it's actually our responsibility to translate the knowledge that we're publishing. It's not the responsibility of someone else on the outside who maybe doesn't understand that research. And unless we embrace that, there's going to continue to be incorrect knowledge translation and dissemination In that we're going to see widespread use of things that have really poor evidence base and maybe you're putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, and other things which should be translated Are actually not being translated so i use something like managing knee pain for example i know from my research that physios tend to believe that there's evidence for things like kinesiotaping to manage pain in the longer term for these patients and that's kinesiotaping to promote neuromotor function those types of things if we look at the evidence, it doesn't stack up. Yeah. And then nearly half the physios are not aware that knee arthroscopy is not supported when it's, when it's put into context of a, an RCT. So they're possibly confident in applying all this kinesio tape. And also when a patient asks them if they need to have a knee arthroscopy, they're not applying that. So people are disseminating these lower level trials about K-tape and promoting it really widely. And they're looking at this great engaged information and they use it and maybe not disseminating the really important things and that is that arthroscopy is not a good thing yeah. for knee osteoarthritis, especially in comparison to something like exercise therapy which still seems to be news to people that it might be beneficial for people with chronic knee pain.
0: Yeah, and a bit of a loaded question because I know both our views on this, but do you feel that, that is, we're going to see that shift? So if we go back to that um, statistic before, not only is it 17 years for that evidence practice gap, but the, the other the other staggering um, proposal of that that is for 14% of that research to be implemented. So are we going to see not only a reduction in the 17 years, but also an increase in that 14%? So like saying for the knee arthroscopies so are we seeing... Um, more um, clinicians are they being equipped with, with the more evidence?
1: I would, I would like to hope so and I hope we do see that in time but I think it's going to take uh, our researchers and academic institutions etc to embrace it um, I had awful trouble trying to publish my paper which and, but I wrote with Mark Merrily around get visible or vanish and trying to get academics to take this on. Journal editors didn't tend to want to take it or even send it for peer review because it actually put a microscope on the practices of the journal. So that was quite interesting. Luckily enough, in the end, we got it published in BGSM. But the point is that actually most journals are not going to embrace this. So it's going to come down to the academics and institutions to do that. At this point in time, an academic is really only judged on Peer-reviewed publications and that's based on their impact but i think that will start to change and they'll start to be judged a lot more on whether their research has impact and changes practice the other problem we have is we don't have an appropriate source for them to go to so if journals aren't going to embrace this then how do they publish this stuff in a different format or get the support to do it it's really challenging so one of the things that we've done more recently was set up a not-for-profit group which is called trek which stands for translating research evidence and knowledge And the whole purpose of that is to set up a platform that researchers and clinicians can contribute to this as well, can put together more engaging resources like infographics and podcasts and videos to disseminate quality information. It actually gets checked by other academics and researchers that this does get the ticket of approval, and then that can get the information out. And I'm hoping we can start to build a bit of a movement with platforms like this where researchers will embrace them. And spend maybe an extra couple of days on their one million dollar grant to actually disseminate the knowledge of their rct and get it out there and i think it makes plenty of financial sense but let's
0: see if it happens in time yeah absolutely it's an exciting time the, uh, taking it back to a comment that you um said you, you used the caption that uh, replacing publish or perish with um, with get visible or vanish and it's interesting that um the the the, the publicists are in, felt that shone a, shone a light on, on, on their own ways of practicing. But I, I feel that visible or vanish isn't just towards researchers and, and, and the articles, it's actually to the to the clinician. So if they're not using these resources, they're they're slowly gonna their, their, their skill sets going to slowly get less and less and they're going to be almost left behind being the one that's still very much championing the, the arthroscopy for, for, for the knee um, in, in cases where it might not be indicated because they're not staying up to date. So I feel that that visible vanish is broader than just the researcher and the, the publisher.
1: Yeah, I think we have to work together. I think there's a lot of stakeholders when it comes to knowledge translation. Mm-hmm. No stakeholders are the researcher who produces the original research. Their institution, they work for and employ them. The publishers that are meant to disseminate this this information and make a lot of money in doing so and then it's also the clinician who actually needs to take responsibility for getting this information so they need to embrace these things and equally we need to have resources for for patients so i think embracing the whole digital and social media landscape is something we need to do because it makes sense from an efficiency standpoint of getting knowledge out there um, and that's across all of those stakeholders, but we just need to make sure that that information that we do engage with, and then we do absorb and start to implement is actually the right
0: information. And that comes from probably having a few more trusted sources. Yeah. If I could, if I could add to that as well, that, um, the, another layer is the, um, the, the, the patient itself is struggling on my way to see you today on the train. Um, sitting across from me was a chap talking about his uh, physiotherapy experience. There I was eavesdropping onto their, onto their conversation, as you do on the underground. And uh, he was talking about five or six sessions that he'd had for uh, for his knee injury, where the, the physiotherapist had been hovering their hand over his knee, um, five lots of thirty minutes. And uh, and the, the the conversation transpired. There had been no improvement, and he kind of lost the 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 desire to seek any more medical input, and I thought that, that that's the, the the biggest picture of this knowledge of translation is that that is going to be the, the progression. So ultimately, the person who's benefiting is the the, the patients, our family that in treatment, our friends that getting treatment, because there's a better quality of um, research that's being disseminated through. Through healthcare,
1: Yeah, and we, we have to hold each other to account when it comes to yeah. knowledge translation and if you're working within a profession and that there's many within that profession not actually using what is evidence-based and not engaging with the most up-to-date evidence, that's something we need to keep calling people out of and changing. Yeah. I think one of the things we need to be cautious of is It's not just about doing that, but it's also directing people where they need to go and actually give them an opportunity to improve their knowledge. And we know there's lots of barriers among clinicians for engaging with research. And we go back to our whole publishing model. And the four key things from a lot of research that we've done that come out is they don't actually have access to the research. So they don't have article access. There's paywalls. Um, they can't comprehend what's written in them. So that's a really big thing as well. There's a lot of scientific jargon. They're not very engaging because they are written in that boring text and it just takes too long for them to do it. So I think if we think about it from a professional body perspective, so MACP, APA in Australia, various different professional bodies, we need to provide that trusted information to allow our clinicians to get up to speed with what they need to do. Otherwise, you have examples like that and what the patients believe is that actually all physiotherapy didn't work. Um, But that's not what we would consider best quality physiotherapy yeah. necessarily. And that can be a big problem.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, um, um, before we start to wrap things up, could we, could you, I know you've touched on this already, but, um, discuss a little bit about what the future pathway of, um, knowledge translation is.
1: Yeah. It's always hard to predict the future, yeah. but if I was to set up my ideal future, I think what we have is a, a platform and a process in which An academic cannot just produce high quality randomized controlled trials or research that has the capacity to change practice i'm not talking about a low-level study with 10 people in it we need proper rcts but also other types of research evidence which can help to change your practice and they need to have the opportunity to disseminate that by different means they're so not just via their academic journal publication and written format they need to have a, the ability to maybe have their exercise program peer-reviewed and looked at does it fit with exercise science principles and is it actually able to be used by clinicians so at the moment we would judge a research paper on its internal validity is it randomized um, Are people blinded both patients or participants the the treating practitioner and then the assessors are they all blinded and we judge a paper on that we don't judge a paper on its external applicability so Mm. is there actually resources produced as part of that if it's an exercise trial for example that means a physiotherapist can pick that up on monday after reading the paper over the weekend and then apply it to their patients. And I think we need to create a platform in which that's a possibility for them to do. We also need to create um, other ways of translating information like infographics and videos and simple animation summaries And the ability of, uh, I guess, researchers to engage in a podcast, for example, to give their expert opinion, expert insights into how they believe that their research findings could be applied, because they understand the research the most. It's not to dismiss those in social media who tend to commentate more so and don't actually do the research, Mm. but I think it's about giving the researcher themselves an actual voice and then along those lines, making sure that... Research is embedded into practice and practice is embedded into research. There's a lot of different levels to work, but from a digital perspective, we just need to create platforms. And I'm hoping what we've done with Trek and we'll have an exercise um, website, which we're currently launching and we'll have a whole range of other things for both clinicians and patients, which we'll launch over this year and subsequent years, which will be free, open access with good quality information that comes not straight from the horse's mouth, but endorsed by the horse's mouth, if that makes sense. So stuff that they actually would be happy that's been translated as part of their research.
0: Excellent. Yeah, exciting time. So, so uh, for our listeners, watch this space and uh, we'll put it out on our own uh, social media platforms. Um, just to finish up, any any other um, uh, signposts you want for, to notify our listeners about? I know you've mentioned the, the, the Trek website that will be... Up running soon, any
1: others? So I think just if you want to engage with this as a community practice type process and the idea of Trek is no one owns it. So I'm here to try and steer it and get it started and we need to own it as a community from a research and from a clinician community. Um, Get onto the website and it's uh, trekeducation.org. So www.trekeducation.org. Dot org, and you should be able to find heaps of information about that. And if you're able to chip in by helping create resources, chip in by helping critique resources, chip in by donating, donating some money because you think it will help the cause and create more resources, then please do that. Otherwise just engage with it and start to use some of the content and hopefully we can help improve your knowledge and clinical practice.
0: Yeah. On a, on a positive note, um, when I last looked at how many people enrolled on, on the, um, uh, initiative on the exercise prescription, I think it was a 3000 already uh, so uh, before it's been launched there's obviously a big, th- a big thirst for it so, um, That's so right. it's an exciting time. Yeah looking forward to it.
1: Well
0: I'll, I'll just finish up thank you for your time Kish, I appreciate you very busy and um, look forward to um, following the success of Knowledge Translation over the coming weeks. Thanks so much for having me Dan.